boy, I had to <laughs> hurry up there. And then there was these trees that I was running into over here. So, well, good to see everybody this morning. How you doing? You guys ready? Hey, you guys are pumped up. The 9 o'clock service was dead. I mean, oh my word. Oh, I even cracked a joke and I didn't get it. It's just, wow. Anyways, hey, just uh, first of all, uh, a big, huge thanks. That was just only a few of the people who showed up uh, yesterday at the Northwood Fall Festival. We had over 45 of our people out there serving. And, uh, you know, we had this little tagline here for you. And so this is one of the great ways that we can show the community that we are here for them. And uh, so <clears throat> this was the largest number of uh, volunteers that have come out and uh, had some really good interaction with the community. Uh, a lot of people were asking about our church and that kind of thing. And the idea here is, um, you know, if you have a conversation with somebody there about the Lord, that's great too. But it, it's, they have this uh, thinking that if, if people are thinking about church, they're going to go to the church that's most in their minds and so the idea is to get your name into the community as much as possible. And so we do that, and Lord willing, as they start thinking about church and needing a church or wanting a church, they'll come check us out as well. And so um, it was good. So I appreciate everybody who stepped in last, uh, yesterday to serve, and Clark and Jason did a great job Amen. organizing that. So appreciate that. And of course, uh, thanks for the food that we had. So that's always a key thing. Uh, speaking of food, we've been talking about the last several weeks on knowing God's will, you know, how to know God's will, how to live God's will. And we know that God's will is found in the Bible, right? And so we're not just a church that says, hey, do this. Uh, we're a church that says, hey, let us show you how to do this. And so we have our grow class coming up this Saturday from nine to noon. And the vast majority of the class is spent on how do you um, know God's word? How do you read it, study it, and be able to know what God is saying uh, in the Bible. We talk about prayer, we talk about uh, giving, and we also talk about fellowship, the, the connecting as a church family. So we'd love to have you join us for that. There's several people have already signed up for that. Uh, you can do it right now. You can grab your phone, and you can go to the Church Center app, Northwood Events, or sign-ins, or sign-ups, I think it's called, or you can go to ohiograce.com, and you can go to Northwood Events, and you can sign up there. Not seeing anybody doing it, but uh, oh, nice! All right, so join Jessica and me on Saturday. <laughs> no, we've got several other people who've signed up, so it'll be a good time. Someone just snorted. Anyways, um, so we've been talking about, like I said, God's will. So today we want to talk about how do you get back on track with God if you've stepped out of God's will, or you think you've stepped out of God's will. Hopefully, the last three weeks have kind of explain that for you, is to give you kind of understanding of whether you have or haven't. But the question is, how do you get back to riding the ship, to doing life God's way? The word calibrate, we chose that word for a reason, because the word calibrate means this, uh, it's down here, to re-examine one's thinking, plans, system of values, or again, how somebody lives life, their purposes for why they live life, and correct it in accord with a new understanding or purpose. Now, as Christians, that new understanding, that new purpose, is what God says, how God says to live life, and the reasons why God wants us to live his, uh, the way he says to do that. Now, we've talked about that for the last three weeks, and so I would just encourage you, if, you, if you've missed the last three weeks, or some of the last three weeks, or even if you've been here all three weeks, it would be good to go back 
and listen to those messages, not because you'll hear my melodious tones, but because of what we've covered. Because today I can't go back and revisit everything as we move forward here and how to get back on track with God. So I'd encourage you to do that. As I mentioned last week, um, there's a lot of different areas where, um, where we may or may not have missed God's will. Um, and we can't cover all of those. We can kind of give some principles. We, we use some of the common ones in order to give us the principles. Uh, and even today, as we look at this idea of how to get back on track, we can't talk about every single situation. But I'm always available to have that conversation. And so I want uh, you to be aware of that and to remind you of that. So set up a time to talk with me. You're like, yeah, I'm not really catching. This doesn't really fit my situation. Um, let's set up a time to talk. You can take me out for coffee or dinner. Um, actually, let's do lunch. You like to spend dinner with Kim. Uh, or just come to my office with chocolate. Um, so that would be good. Because here's the deal. God's will is not complicated. It really isn't. When you look at the Bible, it's pretty clear what he wants us to do, or it's pretty clear of some of the principles of what he wants us to do based off of commands. But it can be hard. The more you trust him, the more you'll experience him. In other words, his power and his promises, how he operates in our lives. All right. So if you're struggling to trust him, you'll struggle to obey him. Makes complete sense, right? You know, for instance, if I, if I did something to you, um, not, you know, not that I ever want to intentionally do something to you, but if I were to do something to you, it'd be kind of hard for you to trust me, right? And what I'm saying. Well, it's the same thing with God. If we, if we don't know him, we don't know what he said in his word, it's going to be kind of hard for us to trust him. However, the more you obey him, the more you'll trust him. Why? Because the more you obey him, you take that step of faith, then you see him meet his promises, show you who he is. And again, I'm not going to go back into the last three weeks because we've covered a lot in the last three weeks. And then this is something that Kim and I were talking about this morning, and uh, she says, I keep telling the ladies this. And so I thought, well, I'm going to remind the ladies and maybe tell the guys for the first time, but this is a process, like any relationship is. This is, this is not something where you leave today and you plop yourself down. You, know, you, maybe even put the, you don't even watch football. You plop yourself down and you start reading God's Word today. It doesn't mean Monday is going to be, whoo, everything's perfect, you know, because that's just not how it works. It's not a quick fix. Like anything that's important and good in your life, it's a process. It's something you have to work on. It's something you have to work through the highs and the lows of. But it's a relationship and so we need to be in that relationship and taking the time with God in his word and doing life his way and let him operate. Let him show himself to be who he is. So how do we recalibrate? How do we get back on track with God? I want to um, talk real quickly, at least as poss- quickly as possible. Uh, there's an Old Testament historical event that took place. You know, we're talking several thousand years ago, but it, it happened. It's a real event. Um, it's not a story in that sense. It's, it's an actual event. Some of you know the story. Some of you it may be new to you. But there was a king of Israel, a second king of Israel, was King David. He was the greatest king of Israel. Now we know Jesus Christ is also king of Israel, and so obviously he's the greatest. But at the time, he's, he was and, and will be until Christ comes back, the greatest king of Israel. The Bible says 
that God said that he's a man after my own heart. So this guy was not just the greatest king of all, but he, he, he had God's heart. I mean, he, God looked at him and said, yes, he is one of mine. He is a, a follower of mine. And so David is reigning on the throne there, and, and uh, his armies are out in battle. Now, if you know anything about the battles back then, the generals were in the field with them. They should have been fighting with the armies, but they, he wasn't. He was hanging out at the palace, which has a whole idea of, you know, wrong place, wrong time. We put ourselves in the wrong position sometimes. Well, he was in the wrong position. He should have been with his army. He wasn't. He was home. He was hanging around the palace. He's up on top. He's looking. He can look down on all the houses around him. And there was a lady who was taking a bath on her roof. Now, maybe that's what they did back then. I don't know. You know, I, just don't, I don't know. But he could see her. And evidently, you know, he was attracted. Um, now, th- before going any further, this lady was married to somebody, and you would think that he would have known who she was because who she was married to was one of his generals. Uriah is his name. And so David, wrong place, wrong time, not doing what he should be doing, he sees Bathsheba, Interesting, taking a bath. <laughs> Anyways, so she's taking, that's not why they call her Bathsheba. You know, not Sheba taking a bath, Bathsheba. It's not that. Anyways, her name is Bathsheba. So she, he invites her to the palace. He invites her to her palace. He sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant. So up to this time, David is not thinking God's will, right? Up to this time, David is doing what David wants to do, what David thinks he should do, what David's will is. So he does the wise thing, and actually not very wise, he continues to think the way he thinks he should think. And he goes, I got a, I got a plan here. I'm going to call Uriah back from the battlefield. I'm going to have him be able to go home, see his wife. She'll be excited to see him. He'll be excited to see her. They'll spend some time together. Then he'll think the baby is his. Huh? Problem solved. Not Uriah. Uriah is loyal to his king. And he sleeps at the door of the palace. And David's like, now what do I do? So David... Again, thinking the way he thinks he should think, he gets a hold of the commanders at the battlefield. He sends Uriah back, and he tells those guys, go into battle, and when you go into battle, pull back and let Uriah be killed. So not only has David now now had a child outside of marriage, Not only has he had an affair, but now for all intents and purposes, he's a murderer. Anybody have a life story similar to that? Anybody bump off somebody in your... All right. Pretty bad situation, wouldn't you say? Worse than 
all of our situations, maybe all of our situations put together, then God sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet of God, and he's also an advisor to David. And this is how it goes down. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and one, the other poor. And the rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, made some veal, for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Saul was the first king who was trying to kill David because he knew that he was going to lose the kingdom to David. By the way, sovereign will of God at work. Week one. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had, not, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord or God's commands or God's moral law, God's moral will by doing evil in his sight? It's interesting. Do we ever realize that our sin causes us or makes it look like that we are despising God? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Well, he didn't know. He had him done. And so it's just as if he had killed him himself. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus the Lord, uh, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household, his own kids. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now, I just threw this note in here. This is not saying that God condones multiple wives. He's just saying... Here's your situation. David, you chose to have these wives because God, again, allows us to make choices. And so David had these wives. And so now God's going to use his bad choices against him as part of the discipline. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, did you ever think that our sin, that people are watching and seeing, causes them to blaspheme God, to think wrongly of Him, to mock Him? The child also that is born to you shall surely die. There's going to be consequences. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. 
He recommitted himself back to God. His first move back was to worship God. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. Servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then could we tell him that the child is dead, since he might, uh, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Notice the step he takes. Then he came to his own house, and when, he re- and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. David didn't stay down. David got back on track with God, and after these consequences, he worshipped God. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Or why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I, I, I brought these verses in just for a, a side note. This verse, um, I know I use as I talk to people who um, maybe they lost a child in birth or after birth. Uh, Maybe they've aborted a child. And it seems to us David was a godly man, even though he messed up pretty pretty badly. But he's a godly man. So he knew he was going to heaven. And he says that about this child, that he would see him. He would go to him. So we have this understanding. It's not a definite... But we believe that God, these children, before accountability, if they die, that they enter into God's presence. And again, not a, you know, thus saith the Lord, but it just seems like that's what he's saying here. So I want to throw that in because I think it's important, especially as we talk further. So if you or your friend is in this situation, you've kind of walked away from God or you're, you're struggling with doing God's will, What can we learn from David's response, his godly response to his sin? The first thing is this, and this should be a real encouragement to you, that realize you're not unforgivable. Isn't that good to know? That God can forgive. God will forgive. He's offering to forgive. 2 Samuel tells us that David admitted his sin and God forgave him. He spared his life. And he forgave him. He wasn't going to use that sin against him. Just like that. Notice, David didn't do anything to get his salvation. To get his forgiveness. To get God to to respond to him in that way. He just confessed. Yep, I screwed up. I messed up. And God forgave him. See, there's only one unpardonable sin. If there's, there's a sin that you can do that God cannot forgive, and that is rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that only happens the moment you take your last breath, because then you can't accept him as your Lord and Savior. 
But up to that point, you have every opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And all your sins can be forgiven. And if you've done that, all your sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven. And so as you take steps forward and you still sin, you pray and you ask God to forgive your sin, not for your salvation's sake, because you already have that, because you're already his child, but for your fellowship's sake. First, first uh, John 1, 9 says this, and, and as I was reading through it this, this week, I just want to challenge you all, read it personally. If I confess my sins, which again, there's no parameters there, it's all of them. God is faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sins. He's not going to hold them against me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Listen, if God is willing to not hold our sin against us, then we shouldn't be holding our sin against us either. David didn't. He moved on. I'm sure emotionally he felt bad. I'm sure emotionally he realized the, you know, all the things that he had done and how bad that was. I'm sure he felt that. But it did, his feelings didn't grab hold of his life and leave him there. He got up. And he moved forward in God's forgiveness. The Bible and Christian history is full of people who have messed up, who have committed sin after sin after sin, even as Christians. There is only one perfect person who's ever existed. That's Jesus Christ. Let's just thank God for that. Because we don't have to be perfect. We need to continue to work towards being more like Christ, but we're not going to be perfect. David wasn't perfect after this. He didn't make all the right decisions, but he kept coming back to God. Listen, we know, because we've talked about this back in the first week, that we are special. God created human beings in a very, very special way that we have this, this personality, this personhood about us, that we can have relationships with each other, unlike the animal kingdom. But more importantly, we have a relationship with God. But we are not so special that God can't forgive us. We're not so special that somehow our sin is somehow better or worse, I should say, than, than any other sin. None of us, as far as I know, live up to David's sin. And so our responsibility is to ask God to forgive us and then recommit ourselves, get back on the horse, recommit ourselves to keep doing God's way. We haven't lost our salvation. We have lost our fellowship, our closeness to God, our intimacy with Him. And so we need to confess that in order to get that relationship, uh, the fellowship close again, the, the walking closely with God. So like David, we, we get things back by repenting of our sin. Now we're going to go to 2 Corinthians, not yet though. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians eventually. Because here's the deal. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was really messed up. So these were people who were professing to be Christians, and many of them were, but he also called them fleshly Christians. In other words, they weren't really doing life God's way, but they were truly saved, just struggling. This church was a church that uh, had massive divisions in it. They were constantly fighting with each other. They were serving in a way that they wanted everybody to see how great they were, how special they were. 
so, and they were also fighting over, like, some like Peter's preaching, some like Paul's preaching, some like Paul's preaching. Some are really spiritual, and they really like Jesus. They follow Jesus. You know, that, not the fact that these guys were already talking what Jesus said for them to, to teach, but anyways. But then there was these Christians also who were involved sexually outside of marriage. In fact, there was one guy in their midst who was involved sexually with his stepmom. Now, the dad is obviously gone, but they're in this relationship where they're not married and, and that type of thing. There was um, situations where they were, um, Christians were bringing in pagan religious practices into the church. Uh, there were some who, um, evidently Christians who had married non-Christians. Uh, there were some who were just um, actually still going back to the temples, the pagan religion, and, and having sex with the temple prostitutes. There was Christians who were taking Christians to court. There were Christians who um, were divorcing their spouses when they shouldn't be. And so he's addressing all these issues. And, and let me just tell you something. Um, there was a bunch of people in Corinth, uh, Christians, who were ticked. They did not like Paul coming into their little you know, situation there and telling them that God's word says, hey, listen, that's not how a Christian lives. And, and he talks a little bit about it. You know, that they, they made fun of his height, they made fun of how he looked, they made fun of how he talked. They didn't like it. But some did. Some heard what he said, got back on track with God, and he says this, And I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Do you want to know the will of God? Here's one of them. Repent. Stay right with God. Just confess your sin and keep on trucking with God. That's God's will. So you may not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, so if you, if you respond the way God wants you to do in the face of that sin, produces a repentance, a turning away from that sin, without regret. In other words, you won't regret it. Your body and your mind and everything is going to be telling you don't do it. But if you push your feelings aside and you live by the truth, God's saying, take a step of faith and you will not regret doing what I'm telling you to do. Leading to salvation. Not, not a, a person's initial point of salvation because he's talking to Christians. So what's he talking about? Freedom from sin. Moving past the struggle that you're having. But the sorrow of the world, how we think we should respond, produces death. In other words, it destroys us and it'll destroy relationships. The word repentance means to have a change of mind or a turning away or recalibrate. Now, how do you know if your sorrow over your sin is godly or if it's just emotion? Well, Paul tells us, godly sorrow brings Repentance, right? And it leads to obedience. So if you're feeling bad about your sin, and you've asked God to forgive you of your sin, but you're not doing what's necessary to get away from that sin, then you can know that this is not godly sorrow. We'll talk about what that is. So godly sorrow is sorrow over the damage to our fellowship with God and with others. We feel terrible. We feel bad about it. So we confess our sin. In other words, we agree with God that what was done is wrong. 
And then we put faith over feelings. So we put faith in God's promises over what our feelings or thoughts are yelling at us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a situation in your life? I have. Where you know what you're doing is wrong. And then you know you need to get out of what you're doing. And it's like everything inside of you is screaming, don't do it. You look stupid. People will walk all over you. You won't feel good. It's too hard. That's feelings over faith. Faith recognizes the need to step beyond that, to push through that emotion and put our faith in what's true. What's true is what God says. Now, sadly, some Christians don't choose to do that. They choose to deal with their sin with worldly sorrow. And so, what's that look like? Go to the next one. It's putting feelings over faith. It's that sorrow, there's this twinge of um, guilt. And that guilt is actually, if you're a Christian, is coming from the Holy Spirit. But for whatever reason, maybe because we don't know God's Word well or, or whatever, we don't necessarily understand that that's the Holy Spirit. He is actually giving us this guilt because we're stepping outside of what He wants. And, and so we'll think it's something else. In fact, the world tells us, don't feel guilty for what you're doing. People shouldn't feel guilty. That's a bad thing. It hurts. We don't like that feeling. No, God says, well, I want you to feel guilty. Why? Because it'll draw you back to me. That's the whole... That's why, you guys, when we continue to sin, why we feel so crummy, literally. There are people in this world who are dealing with anxiety attacks because of it. There was a point in my life where I knew that I needed to do some things in my life and I wasn't willing to do it. And I remember laying there in bed and just thinking about it. Why? God wanted me back to doing life His way. Why? Because He loves me. He doesn't want me injuring myself or injuring people around me. Human sorrow beats ourselves up. Why? Because that's the feeling we have. Somebody needs to pay for this. No, somebody already paid for it. Jesus did on the cross. You don't need to beat yourself up. Jesus was already beaten up for you. And he's hanging there on the cross, taking that sin away. Your feelings are telling you otherwise. Your thoughts are telling you otherwise. That, those are lies. That's worldly sorrow. Some people get worldly sorrow because they were caught. They think God's way out is too difficult. It's, it's not effective. This isn't going to work. That's feelings. They don't believe that he's given them all they need, himself, his word, his family. That's faith. That's truth. And then they isolate. Oh. Yourself is telling you Christians don't want you around. The way God wants me to do life isn't going to work. I, I just need to just be away from people. If I just be away from people, I won't have the stress. If I'm away from people, I won't feel the anxiety. If I'm away from people, 
And all that isolation does is that Jesus, or God has said in his word, is that it destroys. It brings death. So they isolate. Which is not what we're to do. One other point here is, moving forward, does it mean that we're not going to have to deal with the consequences? Now, David, God spared his life. That was nice. Grace. Thank you. But look at all the other things that he had to deal with. A messed up family now. The death of a child. Can you imagine what it must have been like when his soldiers found out what he did to their general? No wonder some of them went with his sons when they rebelled. So we're going to have consequences. But here's the big deal. Here's the, the big difference in all of this. That if, if we deal with the consequences the way God says to, then God's going to be there with us. God's going to be giving us what we need to go through the consequences. And then God's going to use those things, like we've talked about the last several weeks, to grow us, to become more like Christ, to help us know who God is, to represent him, to use us to draw the people to Christ. Now, what, what, what might some of those consequences in our life be? And, um, because, again, some of us you know, Christians, we've, we've made choices. And so what could some of those consequences be? And now, again, I can't go into all of them, but I'm going to be talking about some of them here quickly. This is also an opportunity for you to come and have a conversation. We can talk through this. But also, um, the things, some of the things we're going to talk about you may not be going through, but somebody in your family is, somebody you know, extended family, somebody you work with, a neighbor. There's going to be people in your life who are going through these things. And if we don't have the answer for them, then they're going to continue down that road. And so don't check out as we talk through these. First of all, there'll be Christians who are living together prior to marriage. They might have been Christians before they started living together. They might have been Christians after be. So what do they do? Well, God's word says that marriage, living together, one man, one woman. And so they need to not live together. They need to not have sexual relationships until they're married. Again, not complicated. Hard but not complicated. It could be a Christian who married a non-Christian. Well, you don't compound it by getting divorced. You stay married, and now you, you love your spouse the way God said to love your spouse. They may or may not come to Christ. doesn't matter. You keep first three weeks is so for us to become more like Christ, to, to know who God is, to see how he operates, and to become more like Christ. There may be Christians who have initiated a divorce that was non-biblical. Again, we talked about these last week. You have to go back and listen to it. Well, if possible, reconcile. Get back together. Show the love of Christ. If not, if it's not possible, you don't want to, then Scripture would say you need to remain unmarried. Come more. There are some Christians who uh, have had a child outside of marriage. Again, you don't compound that. You don't have an abortion. And again, 
that's a rough emotional situation. Those who have had that, and, and that's one reason why I wanted to read the scripture that I read that that we believe that God will have them in heaven, which is awesome. It's a great piece of comfort for us. But then you raise the child as God commands, or put them put the child up for adoption with a Christian family, solid Christian family. Could be there a gay relationship or marriage. Whether again, whether they're Christians before or Christians after they got into a relationship, well, they need to end the romantic sexual relationship, move out from underneath that, and do relationships the way God says to do relationships. And then one we're seeing more and more is gender, gender transition. A guy becoming a girl, or a girl becoming a guy. I watched an interview where there was a guy who was becoming a woman. Uh, he claims to know Christ and has always known Christ. Uh, he's actually a chaplain. Um, and he was convicted that he was actually moving in a direction that God didn't want him to. And in the process of that, he met a lady who she was wanting to become a guy. And through her knowing him, realized that she needed, she wasn't even a Christian, didn't even have a religion thing happening, but she just felt like, no, I need to move back. And so now this guy who is going to become a woman is now transitioning back to a guy. The lady who is going to become a guy is transitioning back to being a woman, and they got married. It was like, it was, I was trying to keep track of all of it. And so we understand from God's word, God makes male and female, and that's the, what they call the, the natal gender, and, and that's, who you're, that's who you are. It's who God's made you to be. And so if you're moving outside that, you need to recalibrate, repent, move back to doing life, doing your gender the way God has. Now, I get it. This is emotional. If you're talking with people, this is going to be emotional. This is not why you have a conversation with 10 different people. You have a, sit down with somebody and have a conversation. This is emotional stuff. Feelings are all over the place on this. But as Christians, we've got to come back to what faith says. Faith is trusting what God says about how we're supposed to do life in spite of how we feel. We need to recalibrate. We need to do what God says, not what we feel or other friends tell us. Our way destroys us and relationships. So the last thing we need to do then, as we're turning away, we need to keep in that direction, so we need to commit to doing life God's way. And here's the deal. We make decisions all the time, right? All the decisions I just got done talking about that people have made, they've made it because there was a need in their life. They felt like there was a need. It might have been a want, but they're seeing it as a need, and so I'm going to make this decision. And so... We make decisions based on need. And so we have a question that we need to ask ourselves as Christians. Is God going to be the God of our life? Or are we going to be the God of our life? This is the question that the first Christians, if you want to call them Adam and Eve, the first God-fearers who were perfect, were given. You want God to be the God of your life? And I'll make sure I provide for you? Or do you want to be the God of your life? and you can provide for yourself. We learned from week one that as creator and designer, God has authority over you and me. Everybody, whether they're Christians or not, God has authority. They may not 
like it or not or know it or not, God has authority over them because he's the creator. He's a designer. But as Christians, we have voluntarily given him authority over our lives as our Lord and Savior. We say Lord and Savior, not just Savior. He becomes our Lord. We're his servant. We're God's child. We listen to him. He is our life. What he says to do, we do. Now, God will let you be God, but then he says, I'm just going to let you go ahead and meet your needs. Why? Because God's not going to give us things that are going to cause us to hurt ourselves. He's not going to continue to provide for us if we're going to take those things and then hurt ourselves or hurt the people in our lives. Every good father makes sure that he gives his children what they need to accomplish that good father's desires. And God is a good father. So why should we commit to live life God's way? Why should we say, God, you be God? Jesus says this, Don't worry then saying what will we eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles, speaking of non-believers, eagerly seek all these things. So that's, that's the focus of their lives. We know people like that, right? That's all, they think, that's all they care about. That's all they think about. From the moment to get up to the moment to go to bed. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So what will we do about our needs? What do we do? He says this, But instead of focusing your life on meeting your needs, seek first God's kingdom. In other words, growing his kingdom, drawing people to Christ through your life. And God's righteousness, living life God's way. And all these things, your needs, will be added or provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, he's specifically talking about physical needs, but we know from Scripture that God says he will meet all of our needs. Not just physical. Not just spiritual. But emotional. People make choices about relationships because they have an emotional need. They want that person to fill it. And that messes things up. God says, I will fill your emotional need. I will fill your mental need, your um, psychological need. That aspect of our lives where we worry, we're concerned, and we don't know what to do. God says, I've got all of it. I promise I'll meet your needs. Just do what I've asked you to do. Get back on track. God's will is that we make his kingdom and his righteousness our priority. God's will is that when we wake up in the morning, our goal is through our lives to draw people to Christ for salvation, expand the kingdom in that sense. And we do that by his righteousness, doing life God's way. In every situation, every relationship, every decision that we make, from simple to more difficult situations, we do it God's way. We have faith over our feelings. And that's a process. If your goal is to always draw people to Christ for salvation and, or a closer relationship with Him and obey God in every situation, your needs will be met. That's God's promise through God the Son, Jesus Christ. So what are our takeaways? Simply this, for some here, and maybe all of us at one level or another, we need to repent. We need to admit to God that we've been doing it wrong. We've been living life wrong. We've been responding. We've had the wrong 
uh, desires, we've been pursuing the wrong things, we've been thinking the wrong way, we've been acting the wrong way, and we need to repent and say, God, it's wrong. I know it's wrong. Please forgive me. That's the first part of repenting is asking God for forgiveness. But then we continue on by recommitting to living out God's will. And then we step back and we watch him provide. He's going to provide by helping us understand who he is, all the different, all his qualities and all of his attributes are going to be seen in our lives. And then we're going to watch how he takes us and makes us more like Christ. And then, Lord willing, we're going to see people drawn to us so we can draw them to Christ, so they can know the same God that we know and that we are getting to know better and better through doing life his way. Let's go ahead and stand, close in prayer.